I'm Matt Serdahl. Welcome to Mythic Christ, reawakening mythic imagination in earth, the self, and the divine. Mythic Christ podcast offers an experiential bridge between imagination, archetype, and sacred story to re-mystify the divine image within, to summon spiritual renewal and action in these times. This is Mythic Christ, reawakening mythic imagination in earth, the self, and the divine. Hi, everyone. Before we begin this repost of our podcast episode, I want to share about our upcoming Awakening Mythic Imagination Eco-Depth year-long program, the crises and challenges facing our species in these times will not be solved by activism alone or political change alone. The crisis of meaning will not be mended or repaired by our religious institutions or self-actualization programs. What is needed is a deep process of psycho-spiritual transformation. What's needed is a safe and generative community, a supportive and witnessing container that allows us to fully dissolve, that allows our old colonized stories to be dismantled, our Western worldview to be decomposed, so that we can enter truly sacred space and time online and on the land for numinous encounter, for guided initiation into the mysteries of life and death and rebirth. At Mythic Christ Mystery School, we're aiming for the headwaters of this great quest. Our maps and our compasses are poems, they're dreams and myths and sacred scriptures, their personal experience and the deep imagination and hopefully visionary encounters on the land, contemplative prayer, sacred ceremony and group work, all in a safe but unsettling container. If you're interested in a year-long journey that is sure to transform your life, I would love to connect with you, actually, and you can visit our website, mythicchrist.com slash programs. That's mythicchrist.com slash programs to learn more about the eco-depth year long or to sign up for a Q&A or to um, register with a deposit if you like. Uh, you can also learn more about the year long program by reaching out to me directly. You can email me at matt.sirdal, S-Y-R-D-A-L, at mythic christ.com um, and i would love to hear from you our current eco depth year long program has been absolute magic and a real joy i've fallen in love with all of our participants and really touched deeply by their personal stories um, their own transformative journeys that have really shaped their lives in significant ways this year and also the lifelong friendships that they have built, like the incredible intimacy, even in an online format. We've deepened into mythology and sacred scriptures. They've experienced 
a re-enchantment of their worldview, encountered numinous mysteries out on the land, experienced visionary revelation and the changing context of their own personal lives and jobs. And some have even discovered what I would call their soul name, their ecological place that they're born to live in service to. The new cohort for Awakening Mythic Imagination, our eco-depth year-long, will begin uh, Wednesday, September 6th for our first five-day online intensive. And uh, the year-long is really developed and designed to work with your busy lives of work and family. So the, the flow and the rhythm fits pretty well within our lives. Each of the four modules begins with an online intensive and we'll meet once a week for six weeks, followed by some sort of break, usually for holidays or in between the seasons. And then at the end of the year long is an optional five-day in-person and on-land immersion where we're together doing some pretty deep work. Early registration begins Monday, May 22nd, uh, the week of Memorial Day weekend. And uh, if you register for early registration, you'll receive a $350 program discount. And if you happen to be a Patreon supporter of the Mystic tier, you will also receive some extra benefits, including an additional $290 discount from the year-long program. So again, planting seeds before we start this episode. And if you have any interest email me or visit our website at mythicchrist.com slash programs to learn more. I sing a song for a tree. I sing for a tree I love. Do you know this one who dwells in the heart of the forest? Beyond the burning, the charred clearings. They say a heartbeat can be heard if one really listens with the ear of the moon. If one really feels with the pity flesh of the forest floor, the mossy skin. The song of this tree they will hear, they say. If you lean into the darkness, her song will comb through your hair in the light of the moon. Like fingers of wind dreaming from its branches, 
threads of breath-like gossamer, singing songs of enchantment, old medicine songs. If you listen closely, can you hear it? The sound in your cells, that melody whistling with the frequency and your blood, just above high sea, rattling your bones, that faint whisper, a longing. I see you. I first saw this great tree standing deep in the dark folded robes of the forest, watching, smooth and white, an iridescent sentinel alone, waiting with a thousand eyes, arms outstretched into the sky like a menorah, seven branches reaching upward like realms of divine Sephiroth, burning like candle flames, blazing like the great host of celestial beings, like phosphorescent stars hanging high in the branches. White birch skin watching A powdered mask extending its trunk, an ecstatic ladder to divinity. Can you see it? This great tree. A vine-like ladder winding serpentine-like into the heavens spiraling down deep below the roots. A root plunging into the imagination of the world, that great primordial dreaming tree. Have you ever been there to the tree in the heart of the forest? The waiting tree, the dreaming tree. Have you ever wandered through Salal and Swordfern, stood breathless in an old growth forest as it breathes around you, felt its damp cling to your clothes, its scent crawl up your back, mingled among coniferous or deciduous trees that rise more than 150 feet. Have you ever felt the twisted form of juniper in your memory? Imagined yourself folded into the undulating body of the oldest tree on earth. A desert scape, a bristlecone pine, some 4,000-year-old olive tree in the Holy Land. The growth the tree fosters over long spans of time, the memory of seasons and elements marked imprinted in its ringed body. 
Singing birds nestled high in branches. Multiplicitous species of fungi in symbiotic relationship, weaving up through the tapestry of moss-covered bark. Just below the skin teeming with insects, worlds within worlds. In the beginning, our hominid ancestors were arboreal, only descending from the trees as ice ages shrank primal forests. Our nerve centers and our neurons even are dendritic, tree-like, arboreal in structure, as if we and the tree are alike, as if we are kin. We are walking tree children. In the old myths, sometimes humans were transformed into trees. The resinous tears of sighing bows, branches speak of long weathering and entanglement. As we are an animal soul, we sense an animating spirit in the tree. From the beginning, tree newmans, serpents, birds. The tree from old mirrors the self, the cosmos. Trees form this lung-like organ tissue of planet Earth, eating light and carbon dioxide, producing sugar and oxygen. The tree nourishes itself in the very dying, in the decomposing assimilation of its own deciduous rot in the Earth's animal and vegetal decay. Our ancestors have left bodies of their dead in trees like a cradle in the bows awaiting rebirth, curled up like embryo ornaments hung in the hollowed-out trunks, because they understood that the tree was a vehicle of regeneration. As it pierced the heavens and plumbed the underworld, realms of eternity, of the life beyond. So from the beginning, the tree is the cosmos. It's one of the oldest and greatest of archetypes. The tree, a map of imaginal spheres of psychic experience and the physical world, where creation, renewal, regeneration, life and death, redemption, secret knowledge and initiatory transcendence met in one body, the great tree. It appeared to me the great white tree at the heart of the forest. I remember waking, heart pounding. It was so fresh, so alive, and I knew that it was real. This tree reaching out through my dreams, calling. And my body ignited with somatic lightning, stunned by recognition of this revelation. It was calling me home to the place where I was born. Years before the tree, I had a vision in a trance during meditation one day, and I saw what appeared to be a human an aboriginal elder with white curly hair and a short white beard, clear as day. There was something transcendent about this one, not just masculine but deeply feminine, cosmic, 
great mother-like in the presence of this elder. His face was dark, and the skin around his eyes and face were etched like canyons, like earth's skin weathered by deep time and erosion. And there was this profound sense of mercy, and at the same time an animal-like severity, something else, a mystery beyond all knowing. But it was his eyes. I sensed the universe gazing back upon me. I could see constellations and galaxies like liquid light in the deep black cosmic ocean, and I heard an inner voice, indigenous, Christ, wild Christ. Mircea Eliade, in his seminal work on shamanism, explores the tree as an archetypal image of shamanic states of consciousness. Found across indigenous peoples from Siberia to Sápmi in northern Scandinavia to North America and beyond, Matt, this archetypal image of the tree is not only one of the oldest archetypes across the world, but it's a sort of map of trance states of those masters of the techniques of ecstasy we call shamans. I had a conversation with Matthew Fox a couple of years ago. I was sharing about my inquiry, my journey of exploration of Christ as archetypal shaman, originating in my own dream experiences, and years of research into the deeper layers of Galilean folk tradition that undergird the written Gospels. And I discovered a milieu of healers, exorcists, and magicians, herbal knowledge and trance states that were part and parcel of first century Galilee, And Matthew excitedly shared some conversations he had with a poet who opened me to the shamanic states within the mystical tradition, and his name was William Everson. Bill Everson was formerly known as Brother Antoninus, a Dominican monk who much later in his life became a poet shaman, and in his own right, a master of oral techniques of trance for unlocking one's true vocation. And I was excited to hear that uh, Matthew had developed this friendship with Bill Everson over the years while he was still alive. And uh, excited, he introduced me to his friend and union analyst and author Stephen Herman, who wrote an incredible book called William Everson, The Shaman's Call. He had apparently spent years with Bill Everson in a long series of interviews and sort of spontaneous conversations, and they developed a relationship before his death. And one of the things Bill Everson says in his interview was, quote, Jesus was perhaps the greatest of all shaman, end quote. The greatest of all shaman. It was a moment of recognition, of confirmation, of something that unlocked deep within me that I needed to hear just at that moment. Stephen Herman, whose life and practice as a Jungian analyst and author, was, I would say, deeply influenced and imprinted 
perhaps even psycho-spiritually shifted by his relationship with Bill Everson. And he says this, quote, I told Everson further that his mentioning of the metaphor of Christ carrying his cross as a sun dance suggested to me that the archetype of the shaman was all there in the movement back to our origins. I concluded by saying to Everson, Christianity appears to be undergoing a transformation. The shaman appears to be there at the center now where Christ stood at the beginning of our colonization. It seems that the shaman is somehow invading the space, the sacred space formerly occupied by Christ, so that a marriage or a fertilization seems to be taking place between these two symbols of the self. Christ and the shaman. as symbols of the self. There is a significant archetypal lens that lends itself to perhaps the most significant paradigm shift into the person and nature of Jesus of Nazareth, perhaps for centuries. What I'm speaking of is at the heart of my life's work, which is a rewilding of Christianity. Coming from an older, deeper phylogenetic strata of the world unconscious, where self, Christ, and shaman originate. There is an interior longing and a urge toward wholeness, a drive into the depths of mystery that is precipitating what I sense is an awakening in our culture today. And it's not just Jungians or contemporary anthropologists or biblical scholars like Peter Crawford or Mark Wallace who are sniffing out this underlying shamanic layer beneath the Christ tradition. There was an article by Eric Mirhaug, a Sami shaman who claimed that Jesus was a great shaman. This article in Norwegian media on NRK online news site. And much earlier, Gregory Putanen, author of Saga of Solomon, sees the mythic parallels between the story of King Solomon and Turkic Mongolian mythology. He was delivering a lecture in St. Petersburg in 1911. Patanin explored the, quote, Christ legend, end quote, in a similar way, saying, quote, we clearly see that it is the Central Asian shamanic legend that lies at the foundation of the legend about Christ, and that the image of Christ himself was shaped according to the image that had existed many centuries earlier in Inner Asia, end quote. This theory gained popularity in Siberia, and Gavril Ksenofantov developed the Tomsk School of Shamanic Studies, noting 
that many of the miracles the Gospels describe are found in legends concerning shamans. There are even Siberian legends of shamans who walk on water, feed the starving, and manipulate the weather. Instead of arguing that Jesus was a myth that had been borrowed from Inner Asia, Xenophontov portrayed Christianity as developing from a very specific case of a, quote, shamanic practitioner, end quote. Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is a personage enshrouded in mystery, one of the few great figures who continues to this day to stir controversy, to fascinate deep discourse, and even allure spiritual seekers and mystics, even from different faiths, perhaps even more now than 50 years ago at the height of the Jesus movement, the sexual revolution, and the emergence of the religious right. Jesus arguably was one of the greatest controversial figures of all time, which we can see that adherence to Christianity attributed to Jesus boast over two billion people worldwide. Scholarship has opened new doorways and possibilities into understanding the life of this mysterious personage and an age of new paradigm and new exploration is departing dramatically at times from modern scholarship. This time on Mythic Christ, Shaman Christ, Jesus Quest, Awakening and Vocation. Was Jesus? You ask anyone on the street, and you would probably get a million different answers, a million different expressions or explanations. Scholarship has wavered all over the map from the perspective of the Jesus myth to a Galilean revolutionary who is divinized by the later church, and pretty much everything in between Son of God, Son of Man. The historically elusive Jesus of Nazareth, down through the centuries, has been a large screen in a certain sense. A screen on which we project our human hopes, even our fears. Jesus. The historical Jesus quest often seems more like an autobiography of the historian and perhaps the cultural context she or he is writing from. I'm going to make two general assumptions in this podcast episode. The first is that Jesus is a real historical figure. The second is that we can, in fact, understand more about the historical Jesus if we take into account the perspective of ontological pluralism, which we'll get into later. The perspective of a discontinuous cultural worldview including what we know of the nature of shamanic consciousness, which we'll explore in this episode, which could be described as a biopsychosocial phenomenon that is universally valid across cultures. The historical 
Jesus. First, I want to say something about the notion of the historical Jesus quests. They've been notoriously problematic from the outset, and without getting too much into it, there are a couple of reasons for this. Historiography, the study of history, has been stuck between a kind of positivism and postmodernism. Positivist historiography is born of the assumptions of modernism, which is to say that the evidence, which is mostly textual, can speak for itself if we just get it right. We can positively come to a description of events as they actually were. Postmodernism, on the other hand, views historiographical narratives as creations of the imagination, regardless of whether or not there's sufficient evidence to support the integrity of the narrative. Narrative. Peter Crawford calls this, quote, ontological monism. The historian's worldview functions as the reality catalog, end quote. The historian's worldview. It's simply means that we assume a direct link or continuum between ancient and modern worlds. And Crawford goes on to say, quote, Other worldviews or cultural realities are disallowed the ontological status of reality. Everything that does not fit the catalog is regarded as primitive, mythical, fictional, or not real, end quote. So we see what's at stake here, perception and reality in this vast chasm between our world and worldview today and what actually happened some 2,000 years ago. In other words, the historical Jesus quests are predominantly autobiography. Imagine that. Historiography reveals more about our own culturally conditioned worldview and biases than it does about what actually happened. What, quote, really happened, end quote, is limited by the historian's lens and maybe even level of consciousness. Okay, this resonates with our experience today in an age of fake news and political myth-telling, in our age of QAnon, when the lines between reality and fantasy have been completely blurred, we're seeing a dissolving into confusion and chaos between what is real and what is not. And part of it is that there are multiple layers to the notion of reality. There's our own direct experience that we typically trust. Not always, but we give credence to what we experience, see, and know. And part of that is because of individualism. And then there's the greater question of meaning. How does an event take on a particular meaning? We can all look at the same event, like the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th but we can assign completely different divergent 
meanings to the same event. And then the ones who tell the stories loudest and most frequently are often the ones who get a corner on constructing reality. And then when we look upon the vast animate world, the more than human world, the realm of nature, with all the teeming technicolor of deep time, our modern consciousness is actually gazing upon the world as if through that one single channel on the TV in black and white. Back in the day of seminary, my professors of semiotics and linguistic postmodernism would like to drive home the maxim that there is no text without context. In other words, all claim to facticity are relative at best, irrelevant at worst. Reality is a construct of language games. French postmodern philosopher Michel Foucault is known for the maxim, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power means you better go get a good education because education will solve all of our problems. Education can overcome poverty, racism, and injustice, which is really a great idea. But it misses out on entire realms of human experience, especially our psychic life as individuals that are behind the power of our emotions. What Michel Foucault actually meant is that power is knowledge. That's a complete reversal. Because what he means is that those in power are the makers of knowledge. Those in power want to shape us into corporate agents in service of their own power agendas that we do not have direct access to or control of. In other words, what Foucault is getting at is that History has really been the discourse of the powerful, and a colonialist worldview and a patriarchal lens has colored all of our quests for knowledge in an unconscious service of a power over dynamic. Why is this important? Postmodern thought has offered us a critical mirror with which to see the whole project of modernity in a new light, to um, actually deconstruct the modern structures of knowing. Postmodern thought, maybe for the first time, opened the possibility of what's called ontological pluralism. Peter Crawford says this, quote, The myth of realism, the myth of realism, that maintains the natural veracity of historical documents has been shattered with the recognition of multiple cultural realities. Reality is socially and culturally constituted. End quote. The gift of postmodern thought has been to shine a light on our notion of reality itself that we co-create 
reality, socially, and culturally. So the old notion of old white men, of whom I belong to that category, the old notion that the other, the other, can be mastered, absorbed, or reduced to the same, was rejected. Ontological pluralism, the cultural plurality of worldviews and reality, holds that different cultural systems are completely different constructs. Different cultures are different systems of reality, and they resist the assimilation of one to the other. That's important. And now the question is, is it possible to move beyond objectivism or relativism? So we, when we explore this question of shamanism and Christ, we have to be mindful that there's sort of two kinds of histories running parallel, one being what actually happened, if that's possible, and the other being history as a collective representation of what happened. Quote, history as what actually happened remains an other, and in many instances a culturally alien other, end quote. So we're approaching as those who do not know, the who can't know. We're approaching the past as a new kind of reality that's totally foreign to our constructs. And you might be asking, so isn't this whole shaman Christ thing just another example of autobiography or cultural appropriation or both? That's a very valid question, which we will be exploring. But consider for a moment that just like people, texts tell stories in the same way as the skin of an animal. And underneath the skin is the oral musculature that formed those texts. The oral transmission of unique cultural experiences in particular contexts in which the texts were written and the stories were told. The skin and the musculature, and that underneath the muscles and sinews are what we might call the archetypal and mythic bones. It is experience at a more primordial level, a culturally conditioned psychic dimension of reality, a phenomenal field of experience that, that underlies these inaccessible events, and they find their way into oral stories and written texts. In Women Who Run With the Wolves, Clarissa Pinkola Estes captures sort of this spirit, this layering effect that we can dig down under the layers to something closer and closer to the actual experience. Another way of thinking about this is a text from a particular community is sort of like a plant. Take a mushroom, for example. We see the fruiting body pop up above the soil. But we also have to explore the soil itself. And the soil is a bit like the folk culture, the collective images that are alive in the unconscious of the people. 
and beyond the soil, weaving down in the soil are these hyphae-like structures, which is a bit like oral tradition and the transmission of events through this soil of the particular culture. And these, this oral realm is also mythic, and it fans out in particular peculiar experiences of psyches. Historiography is like a dialogue with the past. It's held in a whole ecosystem spanning time, place, landscape, and region. For a great extensive analysis of historical Jesus research, you might pick up a copy of Peter Crawford's The Life of a Galilean Shaman. But I'm not proposing here a new historical Jesus quest or anything, but to take seriously this ontological pluralism, this plurality of cultures and worldviews that are different cultural systems of reality. Christianity is undergoing a transformation. There's a shaman standing at the center where Christ stood, perhaps the beginning of our colonization. Today there's an emergence into consciousness of the shamanic archetype, arising in the deep longing, the deep psychic quest for ancestral indigeneity, for home, for the home soil of that ancient mystery, that old myth and story which we can authentically reroute ourselves. Some ground by which we can collectively seek what Carl Jung called a new myth, perhaps for our species. A tree that is singing, old and great tree of life and knowledge. Can you hear it? Can you hear the singing of angels and shamans? Songs glowing high in the branches like fruit. Sinuous branches and weaving vines. Umbilicus, Ouroboros. Snake-like vines. Connecting all the ancestors all the stories and myths, all the heavenly starry host to that one great source, the great tree, mighty serpentine roots, reaching down, 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 deep into the soil, 
four mighty roots like rivers fanning and flowing out in four directions through the whole forest. The forest floor for the tree is its heart. It is its body standing in the center of the hoop of nations. These twisting vines of its spiraling body, human-like. This trunk as one like a human. And behold the celestial ones and the ones from below Ascending and descending on the one like a human tree, the one hung on the tree, the one who is the tree. Was there more to Jesus the man than even his disciples ever realized? Hmm. Is there more to the archetypal image of Christ than is protected behind temple walls, doctrine, dogma? Something deep within the psychoactive flow of sacrament. Do the ancient symbols and texts foreshadow? Do they point back to the emergence of the shaman standing on the threshold of great apocalyptic transformation like a primordial mask? Christ. In this podcast series, Shaman Christ, we will explore the social types in Jesus' research, social types also of the shaman, teacher, prophet, miracle worker, exorcist, magician, Galilean, charismatic, revolutionary, sage, all these composite social types that fulfill this one central image. In this limited series of podcasts available to Patreon supporters of Mythic Christ, we will delve into the mysteries of Christ Shaman. We will explore the stratification drawn from archaeology, this model that tradition was preserved in layers. Each story, each word, Marcus Borg says, quote, shaped by the eyes and hands of the early church, end quote, going back much further into layers reaching back through deep time into the beginning. And yet the idea that if something can be shown to go back to Jesus, then it actually happened. But we will explore social types that are archetypal, universal energetic patterns of behavior found across cultures. We will compare the social types of first century Galilean context and the shamanic complex. And perhaps Jesus nor his disciples would have used the concept of a shamanic complex. 
but for our purposes it offers an interpretive and explanatory framework that help understand a wilder vision, a more alive world, and cultural dynamics that are pregnant with the power to awaken, transform, and initiate a new species of human, all surrounding this enigmatic historical figure, Jesus. I just want to know, is it possible that we've gotten it all so wrong? I've been shaped by Christianity since I was young. I grew up in a small Presbyterian church in a suburb of Seattle, Presbyterian church. I'm a pastor even today. still have a foot in the world of institutional Christianity. And yet there's something that burns so deep within me that wants to burn it all down to the ground. There's something in me that wants to clear all the dead trees and move ever more deeply toward the one great tree. A Jesus who moves beyond all of our socially defined roles. One who's a channel of the cosmos itself. A vision larger and more alive than anything we dreamed possible. Filled with compassion not just for the human world, but for the more than human, living, breathing reality of which we're a part. Bruce Chilton, in his landmark work, Rabbi Jesus, defines a Galilean social type linked to Jesus in the first century called Hasidim. Quote, by the first century, the word applied especially to rabbis who were shown to have obtained divine mercy not only for themselves but more strikingly for others. These rabbis cured sickness and relieved drought through prayer, through thaumaturgic ritual. That was the mark of divine compassion believed working through them. Chassidim or ancient Judaism's shamans, he says, Quote, faith healers, witch doctors, sorcerers. Jesus had joined their ranks. He had proved that he was anointed with Holy Spirit, that he was able to channel the energy of God. End quote. In order to understand the Chassidim, this shaman complex of healer, of holy man, of witch doctor, it's also important to understand the Judaic worldview and conception of sin. Sin was actually biopsychosocial. It resulted in, quote, constraint, a binding of one's natural capacity, end quote, which resulted also in a breakdown in social well-being and social order. 
Healing and forgiveness are united in a deeper reality, which in the Hebrew and Aramaic language means to release. Forgive means to release. It means to break open the incapacitating shackle of this living sin, contagion. To forgive, to release, is to unbind both body and soul, and there is this deep sense of liberation. We might imagine healings as from psychosomatic illness, that faith might heal through autosuggestion or other psychological explanations in our kind of scientific mindset. But as Chilton writes, quote, no single explanation accounts for shamanic power, end quote. Take paralysis, for example, or demonic seizure of a person's body that we might view as epilepsy. In the ancient worldview, there was no rigid separation between body and mind. Both were ruled by the spirit world. Quote, harmful or healing, the spirit world exerted influence producing times of sickness and health, sin and forgiveness, paralysis and ecstasy. In his shamanic role at the Pool of Bethesda, Jesus manipulated these spirits. The control he displayed over the supernatural world vindicated him, end quote. And I would also add, represented the spirit power he needed to confront the ruling structures of the priesthood, the covetous and venomous spirit that struck any external challenge to their authority. So here it's important to distinguish that I'm using the word shaman not as a label, but as a complex, as an archetype representing deep psychic structural and energetic patterns as a plausible interpretive model for understanding not only Jesus, but the nature of mythic consciousness. Throughout this series, we will explore the role and context of the shaman and consider in what sense Jesus of Nazareth could be understood from the shamanic complex. We'll also explore the archetypes of shaman, Christ, and self considering the deep structures of consciousness, the nature of myth, so that we might understand better the nature of reality itself. But more importantly, it's not only to understand reality, it's to feel and participate and experience this reality in a whole new way, a whole different spectrum of consciousness. My life's work is really an inquiry and exploration into the emergence of a deep mycorrhizal layer of what I call mythic consciousness, an underlying substrate of reality that traditional and indigenous peoples and mystics, prophets, shamans, magicians, all were in rapport with this layer of reality, this imaginal realm. The imaginal realm being this place of visionary experience and power. And that the emergence of this consciousness is 
archetypal. And I'm interested in if and how it relates to the shamanic pattern of Jesus' life and practice. In particular, whether or not it makes sense of what appears to be an archetypal field and synchronistic events constellated by Jesus, through which he came to both embody and reveal the mythic nature of reality in a particular and concretized form, and also in a universalized and spiritual dimension, through healing, exorcism, deeds of power, the kingdom of God. My model of mythic Christ is really an inquiry into the deep structure of mythic consciousness that follows this shamanic pattern of the tree of life, you might say, with its four primary roots, what I call green Christ, deep Christ, unitive Christ, and generative Christ. And that in Western Christianity and culture, we've really only understood partially the generative Christ and unitive Christ, which is kind of what we mean by cosmic Christ, but that we've completely missed out on this green Christ archetype, and especially the deep Christ. The importance of shamanic structures of consciousness are universal in our psychic inheritance, but they're exemplified primarily in individuals and cultures that exhibit this kind of shamanic pattern, this complex. But these deep structures of consciousness being archetypal are in fact transcultural. They are in fact part of our collective inheritance as human beings, and they are imaged often as this cosmic tree, the tree of life with its branches in the heavens and its roots in the underworld. And the shaman is the one who who can access this tree, who can access this structure of reality and is able to descend and ascend on this tree by techniques we call trance and ecstasy and visions. Mircha Aliade says this, quote, In numerous traditions... The mythical theriomorphic ancestor lives in the subterranean world, close to the root of the cosmic tree, whose top touches the sky. By virtue of his mystical relations with the, quote, reanimated skin of the drum, the shaman is able to share in the nature of the theriomorphic ancestor. In other words, he can abolish time and re-establish the primordial condition of which the myths tell. In either case, we are in the presence of a mystical experience that allows the shaman to transcend time and space, both metamorphosis into the animal ancestor and the shaman's ascensional ecstasy represent different but homologizable expressions of one and the same experience. Transcendence of the profane condition, re-establishment of a paradisal existence lost in the depths of mythical time. End quote. 
This primordial condition is accessed by mystical experience. And these different but homologizable expressions of the same experience referred to by Eliade is like a continuum. Like the spectrum of light from infrared, invisible light, to the small visible bandwidth of light extending into the invisible ultraviolet spectrum of light is one continuous spectrum of consciousness, just like light. And it's structured or patterned in distinct but related realms. Since the beginning of time, the ancients have viewed the world as a tripartite structure of upper world in the heavens, the middle world and the underworld beneath the earth. So this is one continuum of consciousness, upper world, middle world, and underworld. And it merges, mingles, it comes together, the upper world and the underworld, in the middle world of nature in the physical realm. It's a bit like the place where a freshwater river comes together with the sea, kind of brackish waters, or the foreshore between the land and the ocean. It's a spectrum. Both realms of consciousness come together. It is, in fact, one world, and the shaman lives in this one world. So what is shamanism, and what is a shaman? Today, shamanism, the term, is kind of tossed back and forth in a confused way, and in popular culture it could mean anything from, you know, a spiritual psychologist to a psychic healer or a Western New Age practitioner of herbal medicine. There's a whole movement of shamans and websites where you can get shamanic healing and the term shaman in the narrowest sense refers to a quasi-local religious phenomenon that's peculiar to Siberia and some parts of Central Asia. And the word comes to us originally from the Tungusic shaman with the etymological connection to a polyword in the Indian subcontinent, samana. Mircha Eliade in his landmark work Shamanism says the defining feature of shamanism are archaic techniques of ecstasy. That the shaman is the one who is master of ecstatic states. In other words, the shaman is a traveler between worlds and has traits that appear similar to the magician and medicine man, but go far beyond. She or he is a psychopomp, may also be a priest or priestess, a mystic or a poet, end quote. In fact, Joan Halifax writes that, quote, shamanic knowledge is remarkably consistent across the planet, end quote, and that the basic themes relate to the art and practice of shamanism form a coherent complex. Shamans are often persons who are chosen, elected by gods, spirits, ancestors, 
They are ones who stand out in their respective communities. They're, in a sense, set apart and live often in isolation. And it's important to note that shamanism is not a religion. It is a complex of practices and a worldview that is independent but fits within various religious categories. Shamanism is the archetypal and visionary substrate of all religious experience. So what about shamanism today? Are there shamans today, we might wonder? I'm curious, actually, if there are Western, modern Europeans even that could be considered shamans, maybe in a non-traditional sense. Like, what does it take to be a shaman today? Clifton Snyder, a professor emeritus from California State University, writes, quote, Not a shaman in the traditional sense, as Mircha Eliade describes, but Emily Dickinson nevertheless fits Joan B. Townsend's description of neo-shamans as a people often disenchanted with traditional religions and often with much of Western society Although they tend not to be affiliated with any organized religion, they all continue intensive personal quests for spirituality, meaning, and transcendence. Disenchanted with traditional religion, unaffiliated with organized religion, involved in intensive personal quests. Emily Dickinson's personal quest, Snyder goes on to say, her personal myth as expressed in her poetry, compensates for contemporary imbalance through a search for meaning in the face of the breakdown of collective myths. She is concerned about the same mysteries that concern shamans and investigates these mysteries using the imagery of shamanism, end quote. So Snyder sees in poet Emily Dickinson these great themes of suffering loss, healing, death, resurrection, from a shamanic point of view. This beautiful description of the inner world of poet Emily Dickinson opens this whole intuitive doorway to a deeper psycho-spiritual longing that we feel emerging in Western consciousness. I sense it every day, the feeling of complete disenchantment with voting, elections, political parties, messages and mantras, people who say they're going to change, who say they're going to bring transformation and do not, with charlatans, with gurus of all different stripe. And that underneath all of this, something has been severed, that there is a great wound in the depths, in the species level's depths of our humanity. We have been severed from the cosmos, that we are no longer in mystical relationship with the cosmos, the way our ancestors were. We feel the longing for real, direct, numinous experience and meaning. And it's intensifying in our culture that's bereft of spiritual meaning, in a culture that's in ecological peril. 
we might all feel this experience of radical disillusion. And let me just say this. It's an experience of radical disillusion. And that radical disillusion opens the psycho-spiritual journey of dissolution to dissolve. Bill Plotkin articulates in his book, The Journey of Soul Initiation. Disillusion and disillusion are key ingredients to the evolutionary threshold that stands before us today if we are to survive, if we are to heal the wound of our disseverance from earth, as poet-shaman William Everson says. And there's this strange parallel today, this potent connection across time with the world we find ourselves in today, in this awakening. And the world of first century Palestine, the Roman world in the first century common era, when Alexander's vision of a unified world and the expanse of Roman Empire began to be a source of massive disillusion in the culture. And Roman religion became increasingly unpopular because its rituals and practices were primarily civic. It had lost the heart of numinosity, of direct experience, which was a longing for union with the God, with the divine. Roman religion reinforced the order, the values, and the structures of the state in the same way, a similar way that mainline Christianity has done today and has become emptied of its original psychoactive power. Emptied of ecstasy. Ecstasy is not just an idea at root in the dark soils of the numinosum. Ecstasy is pure electric experience. Its design is to transfigure. Can you feel, can you feel how ecstasy moves through your body? Can you feel the pouring of warm oil, the rising of electric current of transfiguration of your very cells, how it transforms powerful emotions, moods, images, in lyrical chant, in hymn, and vision, ecstasy. 16th century Indian mystic Mirabai reveals the origins of her ecstatic chant in a dream encounter of an erotic and underworldly kind. A mystical experience of conjunctio, of union with the beloved. In a dream, she says, the lord of the downtrodden wed me. Deities danced in attendance. Fifty-six million. The Dark One was groom in my dream. In my dream were arched marriage gateways, a clasping of hands, sister. In a dream, the Lord of the Downtrodden married Mira and took her to bed. Good fortune from previous births comes to fruit. These chants rise out of a state of sexual, spiritual longing and ecstasy rooted in craving and suffering due to a deep sense of loss of 
existential separation from the beloved here, Krishna, the divine consort, who, like Deep Christ, the guide to soul, who appears in the dream image of a great stag in the Song of Songs, appears leading Mirabai in a state of trance-like wanderings in the lower world of visionary consciousness in search for her destiny. Dizzy, ecstatic, she writes. My soul goes into her bedroom. Five companions converge, five senses, to give him unparalleled pleasure. One glimpse of his form dispels anguish. All my erotic longings bear fruit. Shyam, the ocean of pleasure, has come into me. Dark one, how can I sleep? Since you left my bed, the seconds drag past like epochs, each moment a new torment or pain. Yet who would believe my story? That a lover bit my hand like a snake, and the venom bursts through and I am dying. This image of destiny, or shamanic vocation, can arise like a soul image, a soul encounter a devastating clue of one's ecological niche or mythopoetic identity. Here the archetype of snake, we understand as shamanic in origin, is consigned to the underworld but appears in dreams, even in contemporary dreams today. Snake, a wisdom that can be liberated from exile or crowned through the power of the deep imagination. For Stephen Hermann, the secret word Mirabai is referring to is the Logos Spermaticos, which is the fructifying word of her shamanistic imagination that rises up snake-like out of biological depths to transform her erotic longings through the vehicle of her poetic visioning, end quote. More and more people today tire of religion and politics, and the collapsing worldview that is suffocating the most vulnerable and marginalized. And as people flock to Eastern religions for more direct experience, or turn to indigenous and nature-based worldviews, it's the same as it was in the first century. This crisis can be denied, it can be resisted, which has been happening for far too long. But something happens when this crisis is repressed, denied, resisted. This rupture, this force, spills into wide-scale psychological suffering, a rise in pathology and depression, suicidal ideation, war, violence, racism. Until something shifts until a way becomes opened trance ecstasy shamanism this repressed ocean of mystery the deep powers of the imaginal the collective visionary and numinous energy that's latent in the collective unconscious will always result in some crisis, some rupture that opens the way to a descent to soul.
If you like what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash mythic Christ. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Mythic Christ. Mythic Christ offers online community for exploring the mythic structures of story, archetype, dream, and the deep imaginal realm, supporting the awakening of individuals who are sensing a collective longing and a desire to rewild these divine images in the sacred, spirit-breathed ground of the natural world. Patronage levels start for as low as $6 a month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site, including early access to new podcasts, downloadable guided practices for deepening your own journey, complimentary mentoring and DreamWorks sessions, early notification of courses, programs, discounts, and more. Thank you for supporting Mythic Christ. This episode draws on a host of books and articles in poetry, Shamanism, Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy by Mircea Eliade, Black Elk Speaks by John Nearhart, The Life of a Galilean Shaman, Jesus of Nazareth and Anthropological Historical Perspective by Peter Craffert, The Chalice and the Blade by Rayanne Eisler, William Everson, The Shaman's Call by Stephen Hermann, Stephen Hermann, in an article entitled A Conversation with William Everson, Shamanism, American Poetry, and the Vision Quest, in the San Francisco Jung Institute Library Journal, Volume 24, from November 2005. Singing to the Plants, A Guide to Mestizo Shamanism in the Upper Amazon, by Stephen Beyer. Rabbi Jesus, an intimate biography by Bruce Chilton. The Journey of Soul Initiation, by Bill Plotkin. An online article by scholar Clifton Snyder entitled A Druidic Difference, Emily Dickinson and Shamanism. The Saga of Solomon by Gregory Potanin. Jesus was a shaman, heterodox Christologies number two in Heterodoxology Online, Exploring the Heterodox in Science, Religion, and Politics by Egil Aspram. Also included in this episode is Poetry by 16th century Indian mystic Mirabai, the poetry of Emily Dickinson, not to mention my own poetry, dreams, and experiences, and of course, as always, the Bible. Special musical credit on this episode today goes to Trevor Morris from the Vikings Season 5 soundtrack. hope you enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, may you be open to the presence of mystery, the unfolding of the great dream that has dreamt you, determined to live the one line of poetry that is yours to live. Amen and awen. May it be so. Amen.